0: Amen. Thank you, Daniel, and it's a privilege to be here this morning. I am Dan Dumas. I'm the teaching pastor here at Crossings Barstown. and it's a privilege to open God's Word uh, with you and to teach you this morning. If you're a guest with us, let me say welcome to you. And uh, we are going to find ourselves in God's big book, the Old Testament, in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1. I don't know, as you're making your way to to, uh, the book of Job, if you notice last week, when I was exiting the stage, how I took out that TV with my head, and uh, the Lawsons were kind to bring me a helmet today for church so that when I exit stage right, you're left, I won't hurt myself. Did anybody see that last week? I ran right into the edge, it was, they, they changed it now, but that, the screen was here, and so I was walking off. Just It still hurts this morning. Like, I still am wounded in the gospel. Here on my head and uh, so anyway I, I just thought that was a funny encounter that's never happened in 25 years of ministry where I've been taken out with a head blow um, right after the service and I was I acted cool and calm if you saw but I was in excruciating pain I, I actually saw stars you know and it wasn't Jesus so um, so I, I, I it was just a funny funny moment and I need to share that with you and then I know some of you are thinking what is he wearing um, basically I went into my closet and had no clothes left And uh, so I'm going to call this Bargetown Orange. Okay, this is Bargetown Orange. This is the best I've got, burnt orange for you. So it's summertime, going to live a little wild here in Bargetown. Here we are, so uh, thrilled to be a part this morning. Um, What I thought I'd do for a few weeks in August is to cover all 42 chapters of the book of Job. I'm going to do it in three installments. Uh, We're going to look at chapter one this morning, chapter two next week, and then the remaining chapters as one big uh, section of Job. So that'll cover three weeks in the first part of August. And then by trajectory, I want to go to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's actually five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you, right? There's the Jesus Duke and you. But Matthew, Mark, Mark is where I want to uh, loiter a little bit because um, it's good to be close to the gospels when you're uh, planting and replanting a church and the reason i've chosen mark is because it's the usa today version of the gospels a lot of them are long and we'd be in them for years i think we can make our way through mark at a, at a good clip and a good pace and it, it is really all of the gospels and all of the life of christ his 33 and a half years really condensed and that's why i call it the usa today version of uh of the gospel. So that's what we'll, we'll be doing in the next few weeks as you're kind of preparing your family and studying along. Um, I would encourage you to uh, go to the book of Job and take a look. And uh, if you have some extra time to the book of Mark, and I'll spend some weeks setting up the book of Mark and giving you all of its historical context and to bring it, uh, historical context animates when you study. It animates the passages. And so we'll look at all that uh, together. So have no worries, but uh, just letting you know kind of where we're going uh, the leadership team is uh, going to be meeting in the next couple weeks for an extended period of time just to talk through some strategy and some plans. We've got to fix a few things, some signage, that kind of stuff. So we'll be working on that uh, in the month of August as well so that post uh, Labor Day we come out and we're stronger than garlic, right? So let's uh, we'll kind of get our house in order in the month of August and that's where we're kind of going. But I wanted to look at the book of Job um, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages before you, Job chapter 1. So that's one reason. It's also the first chapter that the Holy Spirit ever penned. Um, so in the chronology of your Bible, Job falls in, because the Bible's structured by a literature type, it falls into the wisdom literature. But Job chapter 1 was the first thing the Spirit of God ever crafted uh, so that we, it could be written. So it was the first book written, and this is the first chapter written, And it's an encounter with God, Job encounters God, God encounters Satan, and there's all this juxtaposition that goes on. And so much theology comes out of Job chapter 1 that really continues even to this day. So I thought it would be a great, uh, fun series for us uh, right here in the beginning of August to look at the book of Job in its totality, but this morning in Job chapter 1. So just to give you some context, we're going back 4,000 years and what I would call the rough terrain of the book of of Job, Job chapter 1 answers a singular question. It's this. Why do bad things happen to good people? You see great people, good people in this life, and you think, man, they have just suffered and experienced suffering upon suffering, wave of suffering upon wave of suffering. And so it begs the question, why uh, does Why do do bad things happen to really good people? Well, Job chapter 1 answers that question. By way of title, what I'm talking about is the doctrine of endurance or the doctrine of steadfastness. And in particular, if you were going to use a modern uh, phrase maybe for what we're discussing the next couple weeks, it's spiritual moxie or spiritual ruggedness. What does it take to have biblical gospel endurance? Job is the example of that. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to read just the first 12 verses to get flavor uh, into us this morning to to think through. Remember that Job chapter 1 describes a single day in the life of Job. So it's one single day. It's a nightmare day, but it's one day, right? And... um, It's incredible. It's an incredible day as you get to experience it. Job doesn't have any idea what's going on. So we're looking back, having the privilege of having something written about this single day. He's living it in the moment. He has no idea there's a conversation between God and Satan. He has no idea uh, what is taking place behind the scenes or behind the veil Another good reason why we should study it is because this is on the one occasion where you see the devil going into the presence of God, into the holies of holies, and bringing accusation against one of his servants. And you get a little bit of a devilology, a little bit of understanding of how he operates and functions, and it's kind of freaky and crazy and unusual in Scripture to have it. So there's so much here uh, that we need to unpack and so much here that we need to study, but I want to give you a little bit of context So that you understand it's a single nightmare day to which Job had no idea what was actually going on. And for me, it's a category changer as you'll see how it ends as we traverse. And we'll cover the whole chapter this morning. Have no fear. Um, It can be done, so don't panic. Um, There are, are really three scenes, and I'll give them to you up front so you have them. Scene one is in one to five. And um, it it kind of references having a character of a lifetime. And then 6 really through probably uh, 19 is another scene. And uh, it's the kind of trial of a lifetime. And then you see 20 to 22, Job's response to this single nightmare day and you'll see the response of a lifetime. So you see the character of a lifetime, the trial of a lifetime, and the response of a lifetime. So we're in narrative literature, so it works in scenes, right? Um, it's not as didactic as when we're in the Gospels or in the epistles where we can kind of be punchy and just say, here are four things you need to know or five. It's narrative. And and the way it's written uh, demands that we kind of look at it in like a, a play. And scene one opens, and the and the curtain closes. Scene two opens, and the curtain closes. Scene three opens, and then the curtain closes, okay? And those are the rough framing. So I'm trying to frame narrative, but narrative story, right? So it's hard to put an outline into story, so bear with me. Now, I believe there are three things you need to notice that will change your life, your family, and your ministry. First, you need to make sure that in the context of trials and endurance and moxie, You, number one, hold fast to your integrity. Number two, right, you hold fast to your view of God. And number three, you hold fast to worship. You hold fast to your integrity. You hold fast to um, your view of God. And third, you hold fast to to worship. And I'm changing that up a little bit just because of the song that Troy sang about holding fast and holding forth because that's what we're talking about steadfastness being rock solid in the context of a trial Um, moxie it's an old new england word in the colonies they had spiritual moxie the puritans used moxie as the term and it's not the drink moxie the orange drink moxie it's spiritual moxie spiritual endurance steadfastness okay so let's begin together and we're going to open scene one and we're just going to read let's just read scene one and then we'll read scene two and we'll flow like that how's that so here, here it begins, first chapter ever written by the Spirit of God, ever penned. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him, so a total of 10. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, And very many servants or employees. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now his sons used to go and hold a feast in their house of each one on his day. I'm presuming that's the birthday, right? Something celebratory where they gather together. It's a family reunion. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them. He'd get up early in the morning. He'd offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. It was a pattern of his life to get up early and to care for his family. Let's answer the question from Job 1. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, there's a number of reasons why we experience trials or discipline okay first because of our sin it's possible that you bring upon a trial or some form of discipline that feels like a trial when you sin and that's a reflection of God's love for you it doesn't feel like love I get it but it is a reflection of God's love because Hebrews chapter 12 says whom God loves he actually chastens so, if you can sin and experience no discipline and chastening, you should be concerned that you're in Christ and that you're a son or a daughter, right, in Christ. So, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes um, it's because we sin. Sometimes you experience a trial because God wants to use you to minister to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, The things that you go through and the suffer are for the benefit of others. In other words, it's hard to relate. It's hard to have gospel empathy towards others when you haven't experienced it yourself sometimes. And so sometimes God will give you a greater ministry in a certain category because, um, and he'll allow you to go through pain because he wants you to use that pain and experience to care for other other people's souls. So that's a good thing, right? And uh, it's not great at the time, but the fruit of it is is amazing and awesome. Sometimes God brings trials and discipline in your life for humility. Uh, such was the case with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was given a what? Thorn in the flesh, right? He was given a, a pain uh, to, to, to keep him humble. It was to humble him. And so sometimes we get on our high horse and we think we're better than we really are. And we step outside the realm of humility and... And God allows something to come into our lives to say, hey, uh, you're not all that in a bag of chips. Bring it down turbo. Relax a little bit. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you're, not, you're not immortal. Uh, you're not God. As you'll see in the end of the book of Job, the questioning that, that God levels towards Job will be incredible. And then finally, just by way of category, sometimes you experience a trial um, and, and you've done nothing wrong. You're actually doing everything right. There, there's no compelling reason. Um, even in this life, you may never even know w- why the reason uh, was or is. Um, but you're doing everything right. Such is the case with the book of Job. Such is the case here before you this morning. He is doing everything right. And you will solely have to learn to pillow your head every single night on the sovereignty of God. You will just need to trust God, and you may never have an answer in this lifetime. There are things that have happened to our family and to me that I'll never have an answer in this life. And it could be in the mysteries of God. It could be in his divine will and mysterious will for our lives. I don't know where it lies. Um, And one day you'll know uh, when you get to heaven, but now you just don't know. And this text really brings assurance. It really kind of fortifies you um, when when you know you're not doing anything wrong, yet you're experiencing this deep kind of dark trial in your life. So it answers the question, why bad things happen to good people? And such is the case with the book of Job. Notice verse 1. Notice it. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The first point is this. You must... In the context of a trial, in the context of an unbelievably hard day, you must hold fast to your integrity. There was a man named Job. He's not Superman. He's just a man. Daniel read it in the book of James, which confirms he's an actual man. James says, have you heard of the endurance of Job as an archetype, as an example, right? And he lived in Uz. Uz is located in northern Arabia. It was not. Um, it, was, it was where uh, Moses went. Remember Midian? Um, it was kind of adjacent to the mountains. And, and uh, the fertile lands and desert would come to the base of those mountains. We're going to see tornadic activity later in the chapter. And that would explain it. Cold air hits warm air. We've got circular motion, boom, we got a tornado which is gonna take out his family here in a moment. We'll see, and so this is where it is. So it's adjacent to Northern Arabia. It had to have lots of pastures. You see in verse three, the the amount of livestock and mouths that he took care of. Let's just suffice it to say that in us, it was good. These were good days. Uh, These were bright, sunny days, and they were flourishing in, in us. And in chapter 29 of the book of Job, says he was also a public figure. He sat at the city gates there in us. So he served as an elder in the community. He served as a public official in the community. And he served as a titan in business in the community. Okay, and, uh, But most important here in verse 1, you notice that there's some things about this man's life that, that the, the writer draws our attention to. It's kind of like his resume there in chapter 1. And it's this. First, he was a spiritual man. You can't leave verse 1 of chapter 1 not recognizing he is a spiritual man. The text says he is blameless. That's the word for moral integrity. Uh, he had his integrity intact. It wasn't that he was perfect or he was Superman. He was not a perfect man, but he was blameless. He, he led a blemish-free character Lifestyle, right? He had no disqualifying flaws that the writer uh, speaks to here. It doesn't mean he was sinless. Of course, he was not sinless, but it means he kept short sin accounts. So when he sinned, he made things right with the Lord. Then the text says he was upright. It means to cut a straight path. He kept on the, the straight and narrow. He kept in step with God's spirit. So he had this unimpeachable character and integrity, and he, He stayed on the straight and narrow. Then the text says, look at verse 1, fears God. This explains a lot, right? This explains how he could be blameless and upright. It's because he feared God. He took God seriously. And then finally in verse 1, it says he hated evil. He avoided it. He avoided sin's domain. If you don't want the fruits of sin, get out of sin's garden. Job understood that. Hey, if you don't want it, then stay away from it. And so he avoided it. And and so there's this character resume here that he was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. When you look at the package there, you can't help but not see he was a spiritual man, which brings the point that he was doing nothing wrong. In other words, the trial he's about to experience in our next section is not because he did something wrong. It's because he's doing everything right. He was had the capacity to, to handle the trial. But you're thinking, okay, so Job wrote this, and so Job kind of just gave himself a good resume. Well, it goes on. Look Later on, we'll look at it in more detail, but just take, take a look at uh, um, verse 8. So the author says he was a spiritual man. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now you add God's witness. God says he's a spiritual man. Not a perfect man, but a spiritual man. But to me, the exclamation mark is 2.9. Look at 2.9. Who knows you best if you're married? Your spouse, right? They see you every day. They see works at all, good days, the bad days, right? The frustrations, the flash of anger, the whatever it is, right? 2-9, and his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? There's our point. So now his own wife recognizes he is a man of integrity. So you have the author, God, and the closest person to his life that can bring credibility or discredit him. His wife brings credibility. Are you going to still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So this man is a a spiritual man. Important to note as we move forward. Second, he's a wealthy man. How they measured wealth at this time 4,000 years ago was based on your livestock. Uh, It was an agrarian culture. And um, so basically when you list out, and this happens, starts in Genesis 30, uh, verse 7, it lists out your, your wealth, Abraham's wealth, based on his livestock and, and his, his, his impact in the community. And so it notes there that he had 7,000 sheep. So he had the finest wool. Uh, he, he was the Brooks Brothers of 4,000 years ago, making fine suits. 3,000 camels, that's a transportation business. 500 yoke of oxen, that's for food, right, for ag and plowing of fields. And then it says 500 female donkeys. And you might be scratching your head saying, why would someone want 500 female donkeys? Why? Because 500 female donkeys produced milk. And that was the Starbucks of 4,000 years ago. Warm donkey milk in the morning when you got up and had Devo's. That's what you had. And so he had the largest Starbucks business in the world at the time. So this notes that he's the greatest man, which is quite a commentary, right? I mean, if someone said, hey, he's the, he's the greatest of men in all of North America, I mean, that's pretty fantastic, the commentary about him, okay? So he's a spiritual man. He's a wealthy. Most important now, he's a family man. He has, and it notes there, seven sons and three daughters, okay? Seven sons and three daughters. And um, it's important because... Uh, seven sons mattered. You'd want sons. Why? Because you got to have help in the fields and help in the business and an agrarian culture. So you have seven sons, three daughters. And then he creates a context. Scene one is about um, a, an annual event for the kids when the family gathers together. So this is a family reunion. And you've been to family reunions. You probably have an Uncle Buck like I have an Uncle Buck. And they're prone to vice. Let's just say crazy things happen at family reunions. We spend most of our time exiting the family reunion, explaining to our children what just experience, they experienced. You know, this is crazy Uncle Buck. This is Aunt Mary. This is what Aunt Mary does when she is on aiming fluid. You know, and, and this is what happens. You know, like We all unpack that, right? We, we call, have been to family reunions. And it's a little bit crazy. Same is true 4,000 years ago, folks. All of our families are messed up. We're all kind of damaged goods. We all have this system. And you, have you ever wondered like, how did I come out so okay when you go to a family reunion, or it actually makes you feel better about yourself? You know on a daily basis, you're kind of beating yourself up. and then you go to a family reunion and think, "Whoa, holy smoke!" You know how did that happen? So here you have it, family reunion or birthday. We're not sure, but there's some form of celebration. they get together, and like most family unions, they're drinking wine and there's a party. And Job is deeply concerned that in the revelry, in the moment, they do something foolish and offend God or curse God or do some form of behavior that, that uh, brings shame uh, to, to God. He's, he's a dutiful, faithful father. And so what he does, is he gets up early in the morning and he offers sacrifice. Now, here's what's crazy. This is before the Levitical sacrificial system is ever implemented. This is the first book ever written. So this is pre, this is patriarchal period, right? So this is pre-Levitical system. And here he is already, you're seeing indication of a need to to have propitiation, an offering for one's sin. Which ultimately we know is, it takes place on the cross with Jesus, right? But this is early, first book ever written, in the first, first five verses you see a dad feeling and knowing he needed to do something to appease God, to, to offer something instead of him coming down in a, in a violent way and taking out his family. It's a lot like we would do today in, in the events like this that we pray over our children. We don't go out and kill a goat or kill a lamb unless it's Thanksgiving or something, but we are, we, what we're doing is we're offering up prayers. We're saying, Lord, protect our kids from this. Protect their eyes. Protect their hearts. Protect their steps. You know what I'm saying? We're kind of We're doing this. It's just the author's way of saying, hey, he was a family man, he was a godly man, and he was a wealthy man. You take the package together. Here's what's important. You take the package together. There is nothing wrong with this guy. I mean, he is at the height of his career, He's a titan in the community. He's a stud, spiritually speaking. I mean, he is, he is all that. I mean, he is really a, a, a model of godliness and leadership and keeping in step with the spirit. And so this is what we experience in this first section here. And it's a reminder to you. The way you handle trials is by holding fast to your integrity. You see, trials like this reveal your character they do help in determining it but most important they reveal where you're at how you respond to a day like this will tell you a lot about where you are at in relationship to god right it it is absolutely a revealer here and that's what brings our attention to this first ingredient in holding fast to our integrity Then the scene changes. Scene two, and we learn the second ingredient of endurance is holding fast to our theology or our view of God. And so scene two opens, so the curtain closes with he's a remarkable, godly, human, normal dude who's walking in the spirit. Scene two, look how it opens. Now there was a day. Notice verse one. There was a man, see the change? There was a day, and this is one crazy day. Let's read it. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Those are angels. And Satan also came in among them. That should freak you out. (laughs) That a rotten, scoundrel devil is walking into the presence of God. who is a fallen angel, right? He was an angel at one time, has fallen. But it still should freak you out a bit. It should freak you out and think, wow, I I didn't realize that 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 actually takes place. And then God goes on the offense. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Stop right there. That is not a question for God. That is a question for us. God's omniscient. God's omnipresent. He knew where he was. That is a question for you. The Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? And you need to note that you're being hunted, 1 Peter 5. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Ah, there's the question. In other words, what he's saying is he's impugning Job's character. And he's saying he only serves you because you bless him. You bless his socks off. That's why they follow you. Take away all the blessings, which is about to happen. Remove the blessings and see if there's steadfastness. If there's ruggedness. If there's spiritual moxie. He's basically challenging us this morning to say, hey, are you serving God because of what he can do for you or because of who he is? It's a a gut check, right? Verse 10. Lord, have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, and have increased him in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him physically. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. What a scary verse. Now remember, Job doesn't know this is going on. He has no idea. He has, he has no idea that this conversation in the heavenlies is happening. He's just... At his A game in us, living life, sun's out. It's a beautiful, gorgeous day, right? And Satan gets permission. There's some things you need to know about the devil, and we'll just talk about it right here. First, he's not omnipresent, all right? God is omnipresent. He is not omnipresent. He is a student of history, and he knows your behaviors, and he knows how to trip you up. And he's been taking taking down bigger men than us, for, for years, so this is a fact. We know from Revelation 22 that he's accuser, or sorry, 19:2, he's an accuser of the brethren, and this is what's happening here. You're seeing the action of what Revelation talked about—that he brings accusation to God and say, "See, I told you they're following you because of X, Y, and Z, and not because of the fact that you are God and they can have a relationship with you." Oh no, he's saying it's all about the goodies, it's all about the benefits. Make it hard on them. And they'll squeal like pigs. They, they will not respond. And, and so this is a crazy moment. And then you get a little bit of indication that he's what he's up to all the time. He does not sleep. He does not rest. And he goes about seeking to destroy Christians. So as God has a plan for your life, so does Satan. God has a wonderful plan for your life to bless you. Satan has a wonderful plan for your life to curse you. And to destroy you, and especially the young people here, you need to note that you're in the crosshairs of the devil, and he would love to ruin your precious life. And so this is what's going on here. And so he has to be reminded of, of his theology, and it reminds us of the theology that's embedded in this, and a little bit of a devil-ology here. Note also that God goes on the offensive. God is the one asking the questions. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, it's repeated, and then there's this conversation. God says, true saving faith endures. Satan says, true saving faith doesn't endure. It's all about the blessings. You put this, you put a hedge around his life. You've made it so easy. You've made it so comfortable. Who wouldn't serve you? I mean, who wouldn't just fall head over heels in, in love with you because you. You, you bless them. You take care of them. You, you provide for their health, their oxygen, everything about this going on. And so Satan's scoffing God's care and love for his children. And then you have the shocking phrase there in verse 12. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And I would add quickly. I mean, he is, this is his opportunity. He is going to prove that theology doesn't work. He's going to prove that it's not about relationship. It's about the goodies. He's going to undermine true saving faith. And God, here's another point, gives him the permission. Satan cannot have access to your life without God's permission. It's the sovereignty of God. Everything that happens in this life, everything that happens in, in your life, comes through the hand of God. Doesn't mean he's the volitional action behind it, but he allows it to happen. He knows that you're able to handle. So everything in your life, 1 Corinthians 10, right? Everything that happens in your life, you are able to handle. You are built to handle it. And as C.S. Lewis said, why wouldn't trials come to us? We're the only ones that actually can handle it. We have a relationship with God. So we don't just rejoice over God's good gifts. We also rejoice over God's hard gifts, but it's hard to do. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard to do to to wake up in the midst of a trial and say, Thank you, Lord. I understand this is coming through your hand, and it's for my good, and I don't even understand it, but I will be faithful. I will hold fast to my faith. I'll hold fast to my integrity. I'll hold fast to my view of you. I'll hold fast to, to, to my theology. And then you see that, verse 6, where he bolts out of the presence of, of God. Now, we're about to change scene. So we've been in the land of us. We've shot up to the heavenly, scene 2. Scene 3, we're back down on earth, right? It's a, it's a shining, beautiful day. Job's at work, caring for the many busy features about his life. Families gather together to celebrate. Job's a busy man. He's not in attendance. Let's read. Now, in the day when his sons and his daughters were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, so family reunion, birthday presumably, there's a knock at the door. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans, which are terrorists in that region, attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I have alone escaped to, to tell you. He, he let, They let one go. So he loses all of the ability. He's got to feed 10,000 people, right? Based on the numbers, 10,000 people. He, they, they take all the oxen, right? And they take away his Starbucks business. So they kill all the oxen which cuts off the food supply line and then uh, the Starbucks business. And they also killed all the servants. Why that matters is because if you're an employer and people who work for you all die, it's hard to do recruiting. It's hard to have a robust HR department, right? When everybody who works for you gets their heads cut off. So this is a problem, right? So this is messenger of doom number one. Remember, single day. He's like, oh my goodness. Alright, we still got two-thirds, right? We still got we still got two-thirds of the business. So let's double down, get executive leadership together and focus ourselves, right? Look at verse 16. While he was still speaking, Master in Jude of Doom number one, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh no. A fire, the fire of God from heaven, right? insurance claims or the insurance agent, you know, they say it's an, it's an act of God, right? Fires from heaven. Lightning strikes. Precision lightning, lightning strike. Fall from heaven and burned up the sheep. There goes his Brooks brothers and their shirts and all their tunics and all their clothes. And, 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 and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh, gosh. Another third of the business. Another third of the empire is gone. It continues. While he was still speaking, look at the rapidity, right? I mean, it's bewildering all this is happening in a single day. I mean, if one of these happened to us or me, let me put it that way, I don't know if I'd handle a third being gone in a single day. I mean, it it is tough alone. Look at what 2008 did to a lot of people, right, when you had the global uh, economic collapse that took place in our country and really rippled all around the world. I mean, look what happened with people's faith. While he was still speaking, verse 17, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I have alone escaped to tell you. Oh, gosh, there goes the transportation business. Unbelievable. All gone, wiped out. All of his enterprise. And so at this point, I'm... Reading between the lines. I'm in the white spaces right there. I'm thinking, what would I do? You're thinking, what would you do? And you'd probably do something like this. You know what? We can rebuild. I've been to the top before. Kind of Paul. You know, I've learned to be content. I've had a lot, and I've had little, and I, I, I'm back at little, but I'll rebuild, right? And what would you say next? But I still have my family, Right? I still have the kids. I still have my awesome wife, even though she tells me later to curse God and die. But I still have her. She's sweet but imperfect, you know. Um, So, but I still got my family. Look at what happens. While I was still, verse 18, while I was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating, drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you, stop there. Remember location, right? So desert into fertile crescent meets mountains. So you got warm air and cold air, tornadic activity. Comes out of nowhere, freak storm. With precision, we know the devil's behind it, which tells you another thing: he can control weather, right? So he whips up a tornado with precision, strikes the house. They're all partying the house, it collapses, kills all 10 kids. So now he's lost his enterprise, and now he's lost his family, and he's staring over 10 fresh graves, right with his wifes trying to explain, that he's done nothing wrong. I, I, I'm a man of God. I haven't done, I, I don't know what's happening. He doesn't even understand that this conversation had gone on. And this was the ultimate test for him. Um, and this is craziness. And he can't even explain it. He can't get his mind around it. And, and we're asking, why do bad things happen to good people? Here it is, right? It could be something in the cosmic conversation about your life in Bartstown that you don't even know about. It's not because you've done anything wrong. It's actually because you're doing everything right. This is immensely encouraging. But honestly, just to speak to you as a body, I, I don't have a category for this. I don't have a category for losing one of my children. And some of you have lost a child. And it's brutal. A lifelong of brutality, right? In your hearts. I mean, it's tough. This is tough stuff. But 10, your whole the whole deal, all of your family. In a single storm, freak storm. So, kind of third principle comes into play. Hold fast to your worship. What is Job going to do? Now, I can tell you what the devil's doing. He's licking his chops. He's sitting back under an oak tree there and watching this thing hold, play out and say, I got him. I knew it. It was all about the goodies, it was all about the gifts. And God's sitting back going, Oh, Watch this man's theology come alive. Because if you're a true worshiper of God and you're a true follower of Lord Jesus Christ, you're unstoppable. That's the point. It's unstoppable. It endures, right? It's the perseverance of the saints. It's biblical endurance. It's biblical steadfastness. It's, as the song was sung earlier, holding fast to your integrity, holding fast to your theology. And now we see third, holding fast to worship. Look at Job's response. Because it's a game changer for us, I'm telling you. It's a game changer. Verse 20. Then Job arose. What does that tell you? He was pummeled. He was on the ground. He was in a place of contrition. He did not get it. He he didn't know how to respond at first. He was on the ground, weeping. Staring at ten fresh graves. He arose. He got off the ground. He tore his robe or tunic. So this would be a sign of contrition 4,000 years ago that you would rent, right? Like the veil was rent from top of, you'd rent, you'd tear in, in just agony. It's the only expression you have, right? You tear your, your robe. And then he shaved his head. The glory was in a man's hair. And he shaved his head. How he put a straight blade to his head. I mean, it wasn't like he had a Gillette, you know? Um, it wasn't like, somehow he put a straight blade to his lock of hair and shaved his head to reflect his heart. His hair outer appearance would reflect what was going on in his heart and the emotion and the, the the bitter gall that he was he was tasting, right? He fell to the ground again, so he collapses. It took enough energy to do that, and in all of that energy, the adrenaline right above the kidneys, the adrenal glands are pumping right and Throw in adrenaline, which is, you know, over-realized adrenaline or fatigue in the adrenaline grains. You're going to crash, right? It's the crash that comes after that. Here, he fell to the ground. And look at the next word. This is the word you highlight, underline, underscore. And remember, he worshipped. What? Worshipped? Yeah, folks, he worshipped. Crushed by God through the means of Satan, and what does he respond? He responds to his sovereignty of God. He responds to his theology, and he worships. That is incredible. Then he speaks. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. In other words, everything's on loan in this life, including our family. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return the Lord gave, and the Lord has chosen to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Wow. I'm telling you, those statements are a result of his character. And those statements are the result of his theology, right? And those statements made him able to respond properly in worship. Was it hard and bitter? Yeah, absolutely. You see that all in verse 20. You feel it. You feel it in the text. Of course it was brutal, but he still said, I'm going to worship regardless. And honestly, folks, when you're in a trial and you're in the thick of it and you're in a dark, deep valley, the best response is to hold fast to your integrity, hold fast to your theology, worship through it. As James says, we worship through the valley. We don't stop. We don't run from church. We don't run for help. We don't run from people. We, we run to Jesus, right? We run hardcore into the arms of God for help. That's what Job's doing. And he doesn't, he doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't even maybe... I know he doesn't understand it yet. He's going to. And later in the, in the book, as we'll see in two weeks... God's going to challenge it. Like, where were you when I created the earth? And where were you when I created your children? And where were you when I did this? I, they're mine. They're not yours. you are They're on everything you've got in this life is on loan. That sharpens your theology, right? It sharpens your theology. It's crazy. So the question is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes it's inexplicable. It's a conversation in the heavenlies. It's a mystery, and you may never know. But the question is, will you curse God in your day of trouble? I hope not, because I think Job 1 will be a constant reminder. I prayed that God would put it so deep into our hearts this morning that when it comes, we run to Job and go, Okay, I got it. I know what this is. This is what we talked about, that balmy August 5th day Um, in in, in Bardstown, that's what it was. That's what it is. Second, I hope you don't stagger at God's hard gifts, that you don't see him as a cosmic Santa Claus giving out gifts. But you understand that in this life, man was, and Job will say this in Job 40, verse one, man was born in trouble. you're not from these parts. You're looking for a better place, Hebrews, right? This is not your home. Don't put down roots here, spiritually speaking. Don't put down roots here you're not from these parts so don't get so attached because when they get pulled away it's like in life the metaphor i guess would be the, that you would hold everything loosely you know don't don't have a grip on life that's my car those are my kids this is my school right we don't do that that's that's not how the gospel works and then we hold fast to our worship That regardless we'd worship through it. I'm not saying it's easy and it's just a tongue in cheek and a ha ha, it's real funny, I've got cancer kind of thing. It's not. It's extremely hard. But you can worship through it. And you should worship through it, right? You should worship through God's hard gifts as well. So Job says by looking at his life, hey, pay close attention to your character. Hold fast to your integrity. It really does matter. You know, be a spiritual man. Be a godly dad, right, for your kids. Second, don't waste your trials. Don't, don't set aside the and, and waste your trials, but, but hold fast to your theology. You know this to be true of God. I'm telling you, if you recount the blessings, which Psalm 103 does that he read, count your blessings, then when you count them, you'll realize he's never let you down. I'm gonna let you down. The leadership's gonna let you down in Barstown. God will never let you down. I promise you he'll never let you down. And then you've got to place your full confidence in God. When it's thick and hard and dark, you've got to respond like this. He fell to the ground and he worshiped. It's game-changing, game-changing. It's unbelievable, unbelievable response time, unbelievable response to what the Lord is doing in uh, his life. I hope, and I find it interesting, this. This is the first chapter ever written, first crafted under the Spirit's influence, first book written in the Bible. So this is a big deal. I mean, it's the first thing out of the gate is why do bad things happen to really good people. I mean, it's a theology game changer, right? It twists, it it wrecks havoc in normalcy and wrecks habits in our worldview, and it wrecks havoc in in, in planting roots deep in this life when when we should be setting our affections on things above. So I hope that the experience of Job, and Job went through it, we're just learning about it, right, will serve you when your day of trouble comes, that you won't curse God, you'll trust him. And if you've never trusted God, today you would trust him. The devil would tell you, tomorrow's the day you give your life to Christ. But tomorrow's the devil's day, today is God's day. So today is the day you need to trust god you need to have confidence in god especially when you see how satan works I Man, you need help you need aid you need gospel assistance in the gospel and so i would encourage you to trust christ today i hope that the this start of the study of the book and life of job will encourage you and strengthen you for those dark days ahead Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and for your goodness uh, to us, to allow us to sit here and learn and to be washed in your word and to go back 4,000 years and learn about what worship looks like on the, on the ground from a man who who didn't have a church, who didn't have a small group, who didn't have a weekly gathering, who didn't have a sacrificial system to point him to Christ, who had none of it, yet he remained steadfast in his integrity he lacked all the benefits and all the the accoutrements of the faith that we have in the 21st century yet he he worshiped in his day of trouble i pray that that would be true of us uh, this day we ask this in christ's name amen